I think this is the industry's finest moment. We have more shots on goal for this virus than we've ever had for any new problem in medicine. And our science is so much further ahead than it was, say, in 2003 when SARS first emerged. There's got to be a solution there, but we just have to put it on the fastest possible track and not worry about business, but worry about the lives that we can save. Is there uh, an upside scenario where we could be able to have thousands of subjects dosed and have that data set uh, to submit to the FDA for an accelerated uh, approval uh, next year in 21? Yes, that is possible. It will require that everything goes to plan. Welcome to our podcast about biotechnology breakthroughs, the DNA of all living things and the DNA of scientists, companies, and patients who make miracles happen. I'm Jim Greenwood, and you're listening to I Am Bio. In normal times, developing a traditional vaccine can take 5, 10, even 15 years. A lot of experiments and tests have to be done on the bug you're trying to beat before the FDA will let them inject an actual live or weakened virus into your bloodstream. But what if scientists never even had to see the virus to beat it? What if biotech researchers could capture the virus's genetic sequence and make the vaccine using a breakthrough called messenger RNA? Today, we're going to talk to the leader of an extraordinary group of scientists in Cambridge, Massachusetts. He and his team plan to eradicate the coronavirus without ever having to put it under a microscope in their lab. The company is called Moderna, and seemingly overnight, this biotech sped the very first novel coronavirus vaccine into clinical trials. Two weeks ago, the first participant was injected in Seattle after Moderna rapidly unlocked the mysteries of a virus that only found its way into humans in December. Today, we are so excited and hopeful to be joined by Stefan Bonsell, the CEO of Moderna. Welcome to I Am Bio. Jim, thank you for having me. So you finalized the sequence for this virus just two days after getting it from the NIH. 25 days later, you had this potential vaccine manufactured. Two weeks after that, the quality and analytical testing was completed. A week later, the FDA authorized the clinical trial, which is now ongoing. At a time when America needs a hero, I guess you're the flash. You guys were on the job in a remarkable way in January while the world slept. So would you talk about this historic speed with which you turned the viral sequence into a potential vaccine? Yes, Jim. So let me talk first about what happened and then how could we make it happen? Why did it happen so fast? So as you described, you know, on January 11, the Chinese government put the sequence, the genetic sequence of the virus online. Working with the NIH, we work to decide and design the vaccine literally on our computers. Uh, we never had the access to a virus, but we had access to something that we believe is more important than the physical virus, which is the genetic makeup of a virus, its sequence. And so our teams worked uh, both in Boston and uh, at the NIH down in DC, and then they, sh they compared notes. We wanted them to independently analyze the genetic information and then share the different thoughts of how they wanted to design the vaccine. 
And what is very encouraging is that both teams independently came to exactly picking the same antigen, the same protein of a virus they thought was the most potent vaccine they could design. And so on January the 13th, we basically locked down again on the computer the entire design of Moderna's vaccine. And so the team at our plant in Massachusetts got very busy working you know, extremely long days and weekends nonstop to do two things. The first thing was to make clinical grade material for clinical study. And on February the 7th, the vaccine that is now being tested in human in the clinic in Seattle was finalized. As you know, there's a lot of tests we need to run on our products like the rest of the industry to make sure the products are safe. This is very, very important. Uh, and so our team, uh, the February 7th in the evening, started to do all the testing. And the longest test, the one that takes the most time, is sterility testing. Because of course, we want to make sure that the vials we're going to inject in humans do not have any contamination from bacteria. And so that test was completed on February 21st, I think around 10 p.m. So in parallel to that clinical grade material preparation, uh, our teams uh, very quickly made non-clinical product, i.e. product to be used in animal testing. That product was made uh, much faster because it's much less documentation as you can imagine, than the highly regulated process to make human-grade material. And so it took them around you know, a week, 10 days. On March the 2nd, the FDA gave a green light to VNIH to start the clinical study. And so VNIH worked very aggressively to get the sites up and running, go through ethics committees, uh, and also, of course, to start screening volunteers to make sure that they did fit the criteria of enrollment into the study. Those studies are extremely controlled, as you know, and we want to make sure that people qualify for those studies. So there's a lot of criteria that are set to ensure people are very healthy uh, and in a good shape. And those tests were done in parallel to the sites getting ready. So that on Monday, March the 16th, just 63 days from having the sequence published online, we were uh, able to start dosing the first healthy subject in Seattle. And so I often get the question, well, usually it will have taken, you know, 12 months, 18 months for traditional technologies to start a clinical trial. So how could you go so fast? There are a few reasons. The first one is of course, our science or technology. Uh, we use messenger RNA, which is the molecule that sits between our DNA and our proteins. The way biology works across all living organisms on the planet, is the genetic information is stored is in DNA, as everybody knows. But life and evolution has done something beautiful. Instead of making proteins directly out of DNA, which will have a risk of damaging the DNA, which would cause a lot of issues, including cancer, life has this molecule in between, which is called messenger RNA, which basically takes the copy of a genetic instruction of just one protein. So if you think about it, DNA has all the instructions for all the protein. But when you want to make, let's say, a protein of insulin in your pancreas, basically you make a copy of instruction from the insulin protein out of DNA. And then the messenger RNA, which is that copy for only one protein, goes inside the cells from the nucleus of the cells. And through machinery called the ribosome, makes the protein, in that case of my example, insulin. 
And now we have you know, 16 different drugs that have been going through clinical testing. This was the 10th vaccine that we were taking into the clinic. So before the corona vaccine was even designed early in January, Moderna and our partners have put nine different infectious disease vaccines in clinical studies, obviously in the US, but also in Germany and in Australia. When you in your clinical trials and you dose healthy individuals, ordinarily we would talk about challenging them, exposing them to the virus, uh, and you would also be, be thinking of a, of a control group of, of individuals who are not dosed with your vaccine and then looking at who gets the disease and who does not. So how, how do you manage that with a uh, disease that's potentially lethal? We have never run a human challenge study. Uh, what we have done is we've done placebo control studies. All of our studies to date have always had a placebo group so that we can do you know, good science in a controlled way. Jim, what you start with is, of course, a phase one in healthy volunteers. The one in Seattle for Corona is 45 healthy subjects. We are doing the study at three different doses, 25 microgram, 100 microgram, and 250 microgram per human. So if you think about it, this is microgram. This is one millionth of a gram. So it's a very, very tiny quantity of messenger RNA that is injected in people's arm. And what you typically look at for vaccine phase one is primary endpoint. The first objective is safety. You want to understand the safety of a vaccine and how well it is tolerated by the healthy subject. The second endpoint is what has the immune system done following the injection? You want to understand two things. First, can I find the antibody immune system should have made? And you develop tests so that by taking the blood of those healthy subjects several weeks after injection of a vaccine is can you find the antibody in the blood and how much do they have in their blood in terms of concentration per milliliter of blood drawn. And that's very typical of vaccine development. This is nothing linked to COVID or to our technology. That's how everybody develops vaccines. The second question that is very important scientifically, does that antibody neutralize the virus? And this you can test in a Petri dish. You can, and I'm oversimplifying, but you can put the blood of those human subjects that you just collected on the virus in the Petri dish to understand will that antibody block the virus from replication or from infection. This is not a proof that the vaccine is working, obviously, because we don't know yet if the vaccine prevents disease or infection, but it is a very good indicating uh, scientific parameter to understand does the vaccine has a chance to work. As you can imagine, if you run a phase one study on the vaccine, even though if you meet your primary endpoint and the vaccine is well tolerated, but if you cannot find antibody in the blood of subjects, even at your highest dose, or if you find antibody, but it does not neutralize the virus, it's not a good sign at all. And most of the time, what the, the companies will do is to stop the study and do no more further development. What we're going to really be looking forward when we get the clinical data was a va vaccine well tolerated uh, by those subjects at the different dose, because of course we give more and more product in each dose. Uh, can we find the antibody in the blood? And is that antibody neutralizing, which will give us hope that the vaccine might have a high chance of working? seems there's a sort of an interesting issue around the safety because this is a virus that for 
the vast majority of people, um, upwards of 90%, the, the symptoms are relatively mild and not life-threatening. But of course, uh, as we can well see, thousands of people do die from it. And so a vaccine is something that you want to give to tens of millions, maybe hundreds of millions of people, and most of whom are not at risk of death or, or disability. And yet you have to make sure that you save those um, who are most at risk. So how do you balance those two um, realities? Yes, that's a very important question. You give those vaccines to healthy people. And so you want to make sure the risk benefit is in favor of vaccination. And so this is why if you look at the history of vaccines, vaccine takes a long time to go from the labs to an approval because you need to run a lot of studies, including very large safety studies. If you look at previous vaccines, usually you need 5,000, sometimes more. Subject, if you have a side effect event that is, let's say, with 0.01%, you might not see it in a small study before you are allowed to give uh, commercial approval by the FDA. And then you have the right to sell it to hundreds of millions of people overnight. And of course, if there is a rare uh, event that you will not have seen in your small studies, we could have on our hands a very bad public health outcome, which of course nobody wants. And so safety is always with vaccines, the number one priority of everybody. And so what is interesting about our platform is that because messenger RNA is an information molecule and it is made always from the four basic letters of life, the four genetic letters. And so if you think about it, uh, to the human body, our technology looks the same. We use the same uh, chemistry to make our synthetic messenger RNA. We use the same chemistry to make the lipid that is formulated around that molecular messenger RNA. It's made in the same factory with the same manufacturing process by the same team looking at the same test for analytical testing. But safety is always the number one focus for vaccines. Um, we've heard a lot of talk from Anthony Fauci and others saying that their hope is that within a year and a half we might have a vaccine. What, what is the, the, the most optimistic uh, and the most realistic timetable that, that you see for your, your vaccine? As you said, it's a complicated question, and we are highly aware that everybody is asking the question of when. What we will aim with a team and the FDA is to move extremely quickly. We're having almost daily dialogue with the FDA, and I need to uh, give them my kudos. Uh, they have worked as hard as we have worked. We see email at any time of the day and night from the agency. They're extremely reactive to our requests for discussions to together find the right path. This is not at all business as usual. No, they worked on weekends as well. I mean, they are doing a remarkable job in an extremely collaborative manner. And so our goal is to go into phase two uh, as soon as we can safely do. Uh, but so we decided, because it was obviously the right thing to do from a public health standpoint, given the pandemic, we've already started weeks ago making the phase two material. So the phase two will have both a group of healthy adults sorry, healthy young adults and a group of healthy uh, elderly so that we start to understand, again, the safety and the immunogenicity profile. That's a phase two. Then we want to move into a phase three uh, very quickly after 
uh, either uh, an upside scenario where we could be able to have thousands of subjects dosed and have that data set uh, to submit to the FDA for an accelerated uh, approval uh, next year in 21. Yes, that is possible. It will require that everything goes to plan. It will require that the data in the phase one and the phase two look good. Uh, but we are planning, we are planning sorry, for success uh, until we know otherwise because every day matters and you can all be assured that the Moderna team is working with the FDA and the other uh, US government agencies like the NIH and Dr. Tony Fauci's team, uh, the CDC, because we are all pulling together to get hopefully a safe vaccine in the hands of millions as fast as we can. And we know that every day matters. We know we are losing lives every day. So some of the um, critics of our industry made assumptions that the drug industry would set very high prices for its products and price gouge and take advantage of the desperation of patients and so forth. And it, it's, a, it's a sad fact of reality that we have people that they take that sort of cynical approach. So how will Moderna make sure that the vaccine, uh, should it succeed, and we all pray that it will, um, will be affordable and accessible to every single person who needs it, which is essentially everyone on the planet. So that's a, that's a great question. So we do understand that this is an extreme public health situation. And we take that very seriously. As you can imagine, we are right now focusing on getting to a phase two, planning already for a phase three, making the phase three material. So the entire team is basically with our head down doing the work to save every day. So we have not had, you know, detailed discussions about pricing. It's just, we don't have a time number one, given the other priorities we have and doing it so early is just not appropriate. What I can tell you is we are highly aware this is a public health uh, uh, pandemic. Uh, we believe this is not going to go away quickly. So we believe a vaccine is a critical component of public health action uh, to stop this, this pandemic. Uh, we will work with government agencies to make sure that it is affordable. Uh, if you look at what the government has done with the diagnostic industry, the government is basically paying for it so that to the consumer, to uh, uh, the American citizens, this is available for free. The government has stepped in so that people with insurance or without insurance will have access to the product. So I could see a similar uh, template being done here as we get closer to an approval. Some folks um, wonder two things. One, um, if, I, if I contract the disease and I recover, in the absence of a vaccine, um, am I subject to getting reinfected and having the symptoms again, a second time? And the second question is, uh, if the vaccine works and I'm injected with it and I'm protected, for how long would that protection last? Would this be something that um, is, it lasts a lifetime? Or would, is it something that would, it would have to be done annually? Or unlike the, uh, the flu virus, uh, which seems to change and change and change annually, I, I think I've seen that the coronavirus is, is not evolving or mutating uh, as much. So can you address those issues? Sure. Let me take them in, in order. We currently believe, and I want to be careful because we're still learning every day about the virus, but it is currently believed by the scientific community that you should have immunity for some time. We don't know how long the time is, but it, we believe it is possible that if people have been infected and have turned zero positive, 
to a virus that they should be protected for some time. That time is still unknown. In case of the vaccination, in terms of how long would people be protected if they get vaccinated, it is still too early to know. But I think it depends both on the technology of messenger RNA, for which we don't have enough uh, duration data available because, you know, the company is not 20 years old and with a 10-year-old product on the market. So we don't have that type of scientific data to make a definitive statement. It is really hard to know how long immunity will protect you. Uh, and so, so we'll have just to, to see and to monitor the data, to learn as we go. On your last question on mutation, uh, that's a tricky one because coronavirus is a messenger RNA virus itself. And if you look at the biology, usually, and again, I want to be careful with uh, general rules because science is complicated, but usually viruses that are made of DNA uh, tend to be more stable and mute less than viruses that are make, made of messenger RNA. So if you think about it, for example, you know, uh, the HPV uh, virus is a DNA-based virus, and so it doesn't mutate too much. It mutates a little bit. That's why you have vaccines with multiple strain, but it doesn't mutate too much. The other extreme, of course, is flu, who, as we all know, with our annual seasonal shot, uh, mutates quite a lot. It's an mRNA virus, so it's a highly unstable molecule. Well, the challenge with corona is that it's also an mRNA virus. Actually, we have uh, our teams working with academic labs and government labs that are actually tracking uh, on a daily basis the different sequences that are shared publicly of a virus. And we have already seen some mutations of a virus. They are currently in locations of the uh, genetic uh, makeup of a virus that are not impacting, we believe, uh, the potency, the potential potency of our, of our vaccine. So I could imagine a world when we start to do vaccines for viruses that mutate easily down the road, that we should be able to go even faster than that. So you could see a world unlike what we see with flu, where people have to guess, you know, six, nine months before the vaccines are available. You could see a world where if there's a mutation of a, of a coronavirus that is known to the scientific community, we could literally, in a matter of weeks, make new clinical-grade material that if or when the product is approved commercially, we could just go and swap the mRNA and be available again in pharmacies with a vaccine for the new strain. Viruses are difficult. There are viruses, if you think about the uh, human immunodeficiency uh, virus, HIV, you think of herpes virus. Uh, these are viruses that infect people. Um, we, we have some protections now against HIV, but the industry has not, the science has not been able to actually create vaccines uh, or treatments that are curative for those viruses. What, what, is, what is the difficulty about trying to uh, combat viruses? So you're raising a good point. So if you look at the wonderful vaccines that have been developed in the last, you know, 100 plus years since Monsieur Pasteur, you know, did the first inoculation for rabies. Um, those have been mostly viruses that are not too complicated. Um, the, the challenge with some of the viruses you mentioned, uh, those are very complex viruses. Most of them are DNA viruses, and they have been really hard to crack. 
One of the things that excites us a lot about messenger RNA as a new technology for vaccine that we think is going to be over time extremely disruptive to the, the older technology for vaccines is we are not limited to the number of mRNA that we can put in one vial. The thing that I think is remarkable that very few people in the public appreciate is if you look at the last 40 years, since the early 80s, there has been two to three new virus discovered per scientist in the world each year. For less than 5% of those viruses, there is a vaccine available on the market today. And sometimes it is because, as you described with some viruses, and HIV you know, was discovered in the early 80s, so it's, it's one of that list, uh, the biology has been so complicated that despite hundreds, if not thousands of scientists working around the world, a lot of biotech companies and pharmaceutical companies working on them, you know, foundations like the Gates Foundation, investing hundreds of millions of dollars trying to find a vaccine against HIV, we as a scientific community have so far failed. Think about Zika. Uh, the biology of Zika is not that complicated. Uh, uh, the world should have a Zika vaccine approved today. There are still you know, thousands of kids every year around the world that are born uh, with microcephalia, and this will continue until we have a vaccine. Will Moderna, I know Moderna is working on a lot of projects, including, uh, I believe, some cancers that you're going after as well. What does, what's the future of your company? Are you going to be going after some of these very complicated viruses that are sexually spread? Tell us about the, the pipeline and the future for your company. Yes, so today we are working on infectious disease vaccines, we have five medicines in the clinic right now in immuno-oncology where our scientific thesis is uh, where can we use messenger RNA to complement uh, the wonderful clinical outcomes. Uh, we have a personalized cancer vaccine where we make a product that is designed for each patient differently that is based on the DNA sequencing of the cancer cell of every different patient, where we, in around 40, 50 days, make a product just for one human being at a time. Our goal is to be able to, over time, create you know, several dozens of vaccines with this technology that we believe should be able to help prevent disease in millions and millions of people. You talked about your scientists working day and night on this. How are you keeping them safe in the midst of this of this virus itself? Because um, they have families to return to and, and uh, they're not, they can't be locked down the way the rest of us are. Yes. So that's one of the challenge for, I would say, all of us in the biotech pharma industry is that because of what we do, uh, we cannot uh, stop working. And so what we try to do at Moderna, and this is an evolving picture and it's complicated because we learn more and more every day, is all the employees who, because of what they do, can work from home, uh, as we speak, working from home, using you know, uh, all technologies available from you know, video conferencing and so on to keep the company running. But we're reducing the density at the office, at the labs, and also in our factory. We have also, of course, stopped uh, actually weeks and weeks ago any visit into our factories because we want to reduce uh, the possibility of vendors or you know uh, journalists or any other visitor that will come to a factory maybe infected without knowing it and infecting uh, our team uh, in the factory setting 
we are already gone. So one of the good thing actually for all of staff that is working in the factory is even before the virus, they were using, you know, protective equipment so that we don't, you know, uh, have a chance to put in a product, you know, viruses or bacteria or any other particles that could down the road hurt people uh, inside our products. And so uh, by reducing the density of people going into our buildings and by having our staff that have to be uh, physically at the company to do their work, but being protected by equipment and with a lower density, uh, we, we think that's helpful. Uh, and we have a lot of our things we're trying to do to just reduce and minimize the risk as much as we can. Well, we're delighted to hear that because uh, it is not an overstatement to say that uh, the world is uh, holding its breath and, and praying for your success. Thank you for um, the time today. Thank you for all that you and Moderna and all of your brilliant staff members and scientists are doing to um, reduce suffering and, and, and death for uncountable numbers of people. Thank you, and we'll let you get back to work, sir. Thank you so much. Thank you. We had the 2009 influenza outbreak. We had Ebola in West Africa. We had Zika. Now we have Ebola in the DRC. So one of the most important observations that I made back in 2003, and I think it's holding true, is that we're going to be in a new normal where these animal viruses are spilling over into our societies all the time. So Dr. Julie Gerberding is Executive Vice President at Merck and the former head of the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. She's also a physician and an infectious disease specialist by training. Welcome to I Am Bio. Thanks, Jim. Great to have a chance to talk with you. That's my pleasure. So you were all over the press talking about social distancing and flattening the curve weeks before just about anyone else was. What did you see early on that convinced you that something really rough was coming? Well, I knew two things. One is just watching what was going on in China and then the cruise ship in Japan. This was going to be a very transmissible virus at the community level. And so that made me worry right away about what was going to be happening in our healthcare system. The second thing that I knew was that it's going to take a while for us to get treatments and certainly vaccines available to people. So social distancing was really the only choice we had in the short run. And from the data that were available from the 1918 pandemic all the way to the present time, we know if those things are going to make a difference, they have to be started soon, sometimes sooner than the public is really prepared for. Sooner than a lot of people were prepared for. So how would you grade us? Um, how's the country doing at this point? We've seen you know, crazy things like spring break in Florida going on and, and people still out in the streets and even places like New York City. Do you think, we've, we're, you think we're, we're there yet? You know, people aren't uniform. And of course, the outbreak isn't uniformly experienced across the United States. I would imagine, though, that having watched the aftermath of Mardi Gras in Louisiana, that people have sobered up a bit and realized that no matter how much fun you think you're having in a crowd, you really are putting yourself at risk. What do you think about the, There's lots of speculation about timetables and, and 15 days and when we should, the impact on the economy and so forth. Um, what, what's your view on, on how we should decide both as a, as a nation, as how our governors should make their decisions and how we as, the, as individuals should make decisions about when it's safe to go out again? Well, first and foremost, we have to lead with the science. 
as testing improves, we will have a much better idea of who has the virus and how it's being transmitted at the very local level. I think we're also anticipating the availability of antibody tests. Right now we're testing for the virus itself, but we need to have the antibody tests because that will tell us who's already had the infection and is beginning to develop a response to it. That's kind of a way of figuring out what's the bottom of the iceberg. We're seeing the tip. The tip are the sickest people who end up in the hospitals, and most of them are getting tested now. But below that layer are a lot of people who are walking around with this infection and haven't realized that they've been exposed or could be transmitting it or may have recently come in contact with it. And we really need to understand that because that will tell us who is at risk where is it, where is it going, and where do we need to be sure that we're using the best possible social distancing measures? We're all watching in horror as the numbers continue to climb, um, particularly here in, in the U.S., where I think we, if we haven't already overtaken China, we are about to, in terms of number of cases. <clears throat> we're watching in horror as the number of deaths increases, and we're all waiting to, to, to find out where the where the peak of that is and when we start to see uh, as China finally did, uh, the downturn in the number of, of cases and, and the number of deaths. When that happens and the numbers begin to decline, people will begin to say, okay, I guess it's safe to go out again. Um, but then that means that a lot of people who have, have not been exposed because they did stay in could go out and and become uh, infected. So, so w- w- is it reasonable to expect that what we'll have here is not just a uh, a, a curve that goes up and then comes down to zero, but rather a curve that goes up and then um, another curve that goes up and down into and, and a number of smaller curves like that. Is, is that what you think is going to happen here? You know, Jim, first of all, as an infectious disease doctor, I have to say it, this just breaks my heart. This is a tragic outbreak. So many fragile people have become seriously ill and many have died. And I know we're going to see more of that. So it's a, it's a, terrible situation for us to be in. And we have a lot of cases and the number is going to get bigger in the United States. But at a population level, most of us still have not come in contact with it and remain vulnerable. So when you think about how does the social distancing flatten the curve, so to speak, if we are able to slow down the movement of the virus from person to person for a period of time, but then we all run out and do what we've always done, it will just pick up where it left off because we aren't yet at a level where there is enough immunity in our population to slow that down by virtue of the fact that an infected person might not come in contact with someone who hasn't already had it. So yes, your point you're making about the possibility that we can slow it, but if we stop too soon, it may come back. That is something that we're watching for in China and in South Korea very carefully. Both of those countries, for different reasons, have been able to bring the virus under control in China because they implemented such severe social distancing measures and really locked down their society. 
and in Korea, because they have the highest use of testing of any country in the world, they were able to find not only the people who had symptoms, but they tested the people around them and the people around those people so that they were really quickly able to identify the numbers of folks, most of whom are associated with a specific religious organization, who were fueling the fire of the epidemic in that country, at least initially. But now that the social distancing measures have moved into a period where people are talking about relaxing, China says its citizens are going back to work, schools may reopen in Korea in a couple of weeks, this will be the ultimate test, and we will learn a lot by watching that. I think it will help us understand with once you've really slowed down the wave of infection moving through a community, can you then resume your normal activities and use testing as the way to spot check for new cases or hot spots and quench those with social distancing measures, but not have to close down the entire society? I just don't know if we're there yet. We're seeing explosive transmission in city after city across the United States. I'm holding my breath that we may see the downslope of the curve coming soon in New York, cross my fingers, but I, I just think we're still in a very steep learning curve as well as a very steep outbreak curve, and we need to keep an open mind and be prepared for a longer period of social distancing. My mother is 98 years old. One of my brothers lives with her. And, um, you know, we basically have them hermetically sealed in their home and uh, groceries brought to the door. And then I've had to explain to my brother, you take each one out and you, you, know, you sanitize it and all of those precautions. And she's going to have to be protected for a very long time. I have a daughter who is um, three months pregnant. In fact, this morning I got a text and it was a, her latest sonogram of the baby. She's not due until September. So she's going to have to be um, stay pretty much quarantined, I think, all of that time. So there's some people who are going to be need to be quarantined much longer than, than others. Isn't that right? I think the vulnerable people are going to need to anticipate a long period. And, and by the way, congratulations Thank to you. your daughter <laughs> and you. her husband and your and the grandparents to be. That's very exciting. But you know, it's marred by the worry about this coronavirus. And I see this in family after family, the complexity of trying to cope with a, a strange and worrisome new virus in the context of what should normally be joyous occasions or reasons to celebrate and bring people together. It has a very human element to this. And we have to remember that all of our science and all of our virology is one thing. But at the end of the day, it's just about people who are really for themselves and their families trying to do the very best they can to cope. And it's not easy. I know it's not easy. I My heart goes out to, to your mother and to all of the people who are struggling to figure out how can they uh, maintain their family life and still stay away from this virus. You led the CDC under President Bush uh, back in the early 2000s, and you led our response to SARS and to MERS. So what are the biggest similarities and differences you see between those outbreaks and the coronavirus pandemic? You know, Jim, first of all, I did serve in the Bush administration, and we had so many outbreaks during that period of time. It was SARS, but it was also monkeypox, and we had a mad cow catastrophe on Christmas Eve one year, and we had uh, West Nile virus march across the United States and so forth. So it was really one outbreak after another. And of course, that's continued up until the present time. We had the 2009 
influenza outbreak. We had Ebola in West Africa. We had Zika. Now we have Ebola in the DRC. So one of the most important observations that I made back in 2003, and I think it's holding true, is that we're going to be in a new normal where these animal viruses are spilling over into our societies all the time. In 2003, SARS came as a huge surprise. Um, most of us had never heard of or thought about coronaviruses in the world. And then here was this dreadful one moving through communities and hospitals and affecting so many health workers and, and vulnerable patients. And we were really not prepared to deal with it at all. We had the luxury of intense global cooperation from many of the Asian countries that were affected early on. And some important lessons were learned by just observing what happened in the hospital environment and how much infection control measures were relevant to the control and protection of not only patients, but their visitors and the health workers who were taking care of them. But ultimately, SARS also taught us how incredibly globally connected we are. The initial outbreak for SARS on a global basis really occurred in a hotel in Hong Kong, where one very sick, unfortunate patient went and stayed in the hotel for a few days. And while he was there, 11 travelers who happened to be staying in the, in the same hotel contracted the virus, and they went back to their home countries, and literally overnight, that virus moved to 11 countries around the world and initiated the first cascade of infections. So one traveler, 11 contacts, global outbreak. That is a lesson I will never forget. And it goes back to what we talked about earlier, why I am so convinced that this coronavirus was going to be particularly severe is that the speed with which it was moving was even faster than we saw with SARS in 2003. But I think one of the other really important lessons learned in 2003 was that in a time like this, trust is everything. People have to really believe in the credibility of the leaders who are describing what's going on, explaining the science and the measures that need to be taken, and also helping them make decisions about what they need to do. That has to be true at the federal level, the state level, and most importantly, at the community level. And when people hear advice that's in conflict from one speaker or another, it causes them to worry that they don't know what to do, and that is really the source of panic. So if people trust the credibility of the information they are receiving, even if it's bad news, they don't panic. They can take it in and respond appropriately for the most part. But when they're confused and don't trust the messenger, that's when people really begin to experience that overwhelming sense of, I don't know what to do, and, and panic can set in. I think the clue, the clue to that really is uh, to maintain the background of science and to allow the scientists to reframe that into the common sense measures that need to be taken. I, I was pleased to see in some recent uh, examinations of how people are perceiving communication in this context that people really do trust the CDC and their public health leaders for guiding 
information about social distancing and hand washing, hospital care, and so forth. So I think by and large, our nation is being led by reputable scientists. Certainly Dr. Fauci has become a, a rock star of communication because he's so credible and so knowledgeable about what's going on. So we're in good hands. Um, but you can't communicate enough, and we really have to help people understand that we don't have all the answers, but we will be transparent and provide them with the best available scientific information to help guide their decisions. Well, amen to all of that. And then, of course, um, when you have misinformation in this day and age, it rockets across the, the social media like crazy. So now you have, um, you know, people can turn to the internet to get great information, credible information about the things that they should be doing to protect themselves and their families and their loved ones. Um, but of course, there's you know, all kinds of misinformation and disinformation out there as well. If if there is a silver lining to, to this tragedy, it is that some folks who uh, have been in unfairly held in disregard by by many in the public, starting with, with our own biotechnology industry, um, but also uh, federal employees um, who are often subject of public scorn. We're seeing now that the world is, is hanging on the work of, of so many of our companies. From your days at CDC, if, if we could walk into the CDC right now, with a camera crew, what would we what, what would we see going on there? The first place you would probably want to visit is the Emergency Operations Center, which is as sophisticated as any in the nation. I have situation awareness to just about every environment where there is information that pertains to the spread of the disease. There'll be a, a map that shows transportation patterns. There will be maps that show how many cases and, and what is the impact at a very local level. There'll be data on a screen showing the supplies of ventilators and masks and all of the other equipment. They'll, I'm sure, be tracking the testing, um, the testing that the CDC public health system is now supporting, but also the testing that the private sector is doing. So all of this information is in this giant room where some of the smartest people in the world are sitting uh, at their desks with their technical expertise, creating daily situation awareness, action items that dictate what is the agenda for the day, and then how do they link that information to the Department of Health and Human Services and the rest of our government so that we can coordinate in all of government response. I think of the CDC and an infectious disease outbreak as ground zero in the sense that they are the place that is really taking the science and converting that into estimates of the pace and spread of the outbreak and then creating evidence-based guidelines about what people should do. I remember uh, right after 9-11, when I was in Congress and I was chairing the Oversight Investigation Subcommittee, my concern, some of us had concern, it was, might have been, um, everybody was just waiting for other shoes to fall down. We were worried about whether uh, terrorists would get into the CDC and go after the smallpox virus there. Um, and I believe you took me for a tour back then. And one of the things that you showed me was uh, this vast room where they had all of these packs of emergency materials that could be put into the bellies of airplanes and flown around uh, the country in a case of emergencies. Have they? Would you assume that they have all been uh, dispersed at this point? Well, this strategic national stockpile is actually uh, distributed around our nation 
hidden in plain sight, so to speak, in giant warehouses. So what you saw was just a small fraction of what would be in one of the stockpile locations, but it has things that would be helpful in an infectious disease outbreak, but it also has much broader materials that would be used in a bomb or some kind of earthquake or other medical catastrophe. So it has a very broad inventory. In the case of this situation, I am sure that the personal protective equipment and the ventilators that are included in the stockpile are being appropriately allocated to places where they're needed. And I imagine that they are coming from a variety of sites around the country since they don't house the stockpile all in one location for obvious reasons. It is a backup resource. It's never going to be enough to manage the entire population. And that's what people are really worried about. I'll tell you, Jim, I I spoke this weekend with the CEO of one of the really most prestigious and important hospitals in New York City, and um, they were so pleased that they had managed to develop a protocol for how they could safely ventilate two patients with one ventilator. And I thought that was miraculous, but it also was a stunning acknowledgement of how concerned people are about the shortages of our medical equipment a tribute to innovation, but also a statement of how serious this outbreak really is. So when people are asking, do I really need to social distance? I think of that image of a hospital so crowded with very ill patients and experiencing shortages of really important life-saving medical equipment. If we can do anything to reduce the burden of the health workers and the patients in that situation, it's our responsibility. So I'm proud to be an American and I'm proud to see what people are doing to help with this problem. But in the back of my mind, I'm thinking of the folks who are really on the front line and those are the health workers who are trying to solve problems like that. Well, of course, also on the front line are dozens of biotech companies. This Tuesday and Wednesday, um, we at Bio um, put on a, a summit where we had something like 45 of our member companies who were engaged in looking for diagnostics and therapeutics and vaccines to come together and share information, uh, think about how they can share capacity, manufacturing capacity, just to make sure that we can get, we can get these medicines to people who need them as soon as possible. What's your, um, what's your most optimistic hope about when we th- you think we might be able to see drugs that will treat patients that are experiencing respiratory distress already and protect people in the short term with antibodies and in the long term with vaccines? I'd like to be really optimistic about the short-term options for treatment. I can't believe that among all the antivirals that the companies have on their shelves or in the marketplace and all of the other interventions, either against the virus or against the exaggerated immune response that occurs in the sickest patients, that we have some things that we can get out there quickly, but we need to do that with the appropriate clinical trials. I think this is the industry's finest moment. We have more shots on goal for this virus than we've ever had for any new problem in medicine, and our science is so much further ahead than it was, say, in 2003 when SARS first emerged. There's got to be a solution there, but we just have to put it on the fastest possible track and not worry about business, but worry about the lives that we can save. Now, for vaccines, it's a little bit different um, as vaccine problem is 
a situation where we have to be sure it's absolutely safe because we're going to be using it in, in very healthy people and it takes a long time to do that right. So Merck learned that in the context of Herbivo, the vaccine that we just got licensed for uh, prevention of uh, Ebola virus infection. We first tested the virus during the West Africa outbreak in 2014. And despite the fact that we put it on the fastest possible track for licensure and manufacturing. Uh, we didn't get full licensure from the US FDA until December of 2019. So that was a very long time to go from great idea to full licensure. It won't take that long to get a vaccine for coronavirus out into people's arms, but it's going to take a, at least a year. And hopefully um, we can move it in a direction as fast as possible so that the manufacturing can be scaled at the same time. It's not going to do us much good to have a vaccine if we can't make enough of it to really have an impact in the population. Well, there's a related issue, which is the whole issue of antibiotic resistance. It's been a struggle for companies to be able to come up with new antibiotics for both scientific and, and commercial economic reasons. But we're seeing that, that some of the, that there's a secondary infections to some of the coronavirus patients from uh, with antibiotic resistance. So what, what are your thoughts about there? Are we, going, are we going to be able to counter that as well? Well, you know, Jim, the, the problem of superbugs, very drug-resistant bacteria, complicating the care of hospital patients is a, a known problem. It's a predictable surprise in this context. Uh, but many people don't realize that when a coronavirus patient is hospitalized, and especially if they're hospitalized in a intensive care and have many interventions, intravenous lines, a ventilator, et cetera, that they're at high risk for acquiring the secondary bacterial infections in the hospital. In fact, the early data indicate about one in seven of the coronavirus patients who are hospitalized are, are actually succumbing to these secondary infections. So we need antibiotics in addition to antivirals and coronavirus vaccines. And we have some, but we don't have enough and we don't have the pipeline of these antibiotics that we need. Uh, it's an example where uh, the incentives for developing them have not kept pace with the realities of the hospital reimbursement system. So there are hospitals now that don't have the antibiotics they're going to need for these patients because their formularies haven't accommodated them um, because they don't have the ability to re get reimbursed if they use them. And that, that's just a shame. That's a predictable surprise and we can do better than this. So we do need uh, congressional support, and we need some policy changes in order to make sure that the antibiotics are in the hospitals and available. But more importantly for us in the biopharmaceutical industry, we need to make sure that companies have the incentives to do the science and the development, which can be very expensive. It's somewhere around a billion dollars, most people estimate, to bring one of these new antibiotics forward. Um, just in the last year, as you know, three companies uh, have gone out of business or failed financially because they just can't make a case for bringing these very important antibiotics to the market. I've been serving for the last five or six years on a, a, a bipartisan biodefense panel that's been co-chaired by Tom Ridge, former 
uh, Homeland Security Secretary and Governor of Pennsylvania, along with former Senators Lieberman and Daschle and others. And we've been saying for five years, it's not a question of, of if this is going to happen, it's a question of when it's going to happen. And we made hundreds of recommendations to the Congress and to the administrations about what to do, and most of which were unfortunately not um, did, did not accepted and, and acted upon. So, and we said for whatever, please don't do what Congress so frequently does is lock the doors after the horses are gone. But in this case, the horses are, are, are gone, but uh, hopefully Congress will learn from this and administrations will learn that this will not be the last of these. It'll happen again. So I know everyone in the world wants to talk with you and, and they wish they could get you in your studios where actually fewer and fewer people are these days. So what are you personally doing? If anybody in the whole world knows how to protect themselves, it's probably you. So what are you doing to make sure that uh, you stay safe? Well, I'm aggravated, Jim, because I'm an infectious disease doctor and I really want to be in the hospital doing what I love and what I feel is my personal mission. Um, but right now I'm following the rules of my governor in my state. I'm staying in my home in Pennsylvania. And my office looks like I'm in a radio studio because I have all kinds of uh, recording devices and computers here. But I'm working as hard as I can to try to share information inside the company, Merck, um, where we are working hard to sustain the supply of our medicines and vaccines because we do feel like we're providing an essential service right now. As I said, patients need antibiotics. So that means our Manufacturing has to continue to make those antibiotics and get them out to people, et cetera. Um, but we also know that at a community level, we have a responsibility to stay home and not be a source of transmission to other people. I'm finding it very frustrating. So yes, I am trying to do a little exercise and eat right. And maybe this is a good time to lose a couple extra pounds that I was hoping <laughs> to shed. Uh, but mostly I'm trying to do my best to stay up to speed with what's going on and be a hub of information to share with others across my company, but also uh, across the medical community. And, and of course, uh, within our biopharmaceutical sector. Well, we're, we're in the same boat. I'm in my home office in, in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, and my, which also looks like a studio with computers and headsets and microphones all about. My daughter is with us, my, our, our son and, and his wife and our grandson. So we're all uh, sealed up here together. With all of us here, we tend to have, we have some very good cooks here, so we tend to have um, <laughs> evening feasts. So I'm not sure I'm going to do well on the weight loss, but well, you know, case- Tim, I just, I just want to add to that because you, you, the scene of you with your family, we, we talk about social distancing, but I think we should be talking about physical distancing. That's what needs to happen. We need to stay physically separate, but this is a great time to be socially connected using our digital tools. Uh, for the first time ever in my extended family, we held a, a large family conference call it was breathtaking. It was so good to talk to my cousins and their kids and my aunts and uncles and, and my mom. Uh, it was just a remarkable experience that we probably wouldn't have had without this coronavirus outbreak. So you know, many people are feeling isolated. And if you can only do one thing, reach out and call somebody or connect with somebody that you haven't talked to in a long time, just to make sure that they're doing okay and they aren't so isolated. 
Excellent advice, not only scientific, but uh, psychological, emotional advice. I think uh, Friday evenings, we're finding people are having uh, online happy hours. So uh, there'll probably be a lot of that happening tonight. Well, Julie, thank you so much for uh, being with us today. And thank you so much for what you do and have done for your entire career. Well, likewise, Jim. And thanks for being our representative for the biopharmaceutical industry. Industry, As I, as I said earlier, uh, this is our finest hour and we are really part of the solution. Amen. Bye-bye. Thanks. Thank you. Former Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld famously said, there are known knowns. There are things we know we know. There are known unknowns. That is to say, we know there are some things we do not know. But there are also unknown unknowns. The ones we don't know, we don't know. Next week's episode will focus on coronavirus testing and diagnostics. We're going to talk about all the things we don't know and how biotech can change that. Coronavirus testing. We don't know what we don't know. That's next Monday on I Am Bio.